My name is Don. I am an alcoholic. And I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing tonight. My home group is known as an AA group. The long form of the third tradition says that any two or more alcoholics gathered for sobriety may call themselves an AA group. So we do. And... We meet at 6 o'clock in the morning every Friday morning in the basement of a community correction center. We started the group uh, in a lovely home and then decided there was no service involved at all there, so we went where uh, we thought we were most needed. There is no dead weight in my home group. You either want to be there or you're not there uh, at 6 in the morning. My heart's full. I have been deeply touched this weekend. Babs moved me tremendously today. And I have history with people in this room, Hank and Russ and so many of you that I have history with. See, I'm one of those kind of people that used up everybody and burned every bridge behind me, and I had no history at all. And to know people for the number of years and to have participated with all of you, I'm touched. I'm sorry I missed the uh, snowstorm last year. <coughs> I was supposed to be here. Uh, obviously, I wasn't supposed to be here. And we came close this time. On, uh, I had a little sinus infection last week, and they gave me penicillin. And Tuesday, it put me in the hospital. It turns out I'm allergic to penicillin. <laughs> I decided I'm coming if I have to come in a wheelchair. So if you see me itching, uh, that's all that's about. <laughs> My wife asked me to tell you she loves you, and I want to talk a little bit about that. We get to come and do this, and I love this. Anybody who does this more than once and says that they don't like it's lying to you, okay? But she loves you more than I do because she does not need Alcoholics Anonymous, and she doesn't need to send me off here, but she stays home many weekends and says, go do what you have to do. Uh, when I come home, I'm always horny, and she likes that. <laughs> We've been married 22 straight years without a fight. That's a fact. Absolutely. We do not always agree, but it's completely unnecessary to fight. And Why would I fight with the person I love the most on this planet? That would be the silliest thing in the world. Besides, she's mostly right. She thinks I'm the cutest thing she's ever seen. I just agree with her. We've had some fun this weekend. We'll continue to have some fun. I'm like Babs. I hope we laugh a little tonight because this is way too serious a deal to get too serious about. But I need to tell you about Jerome. Jerome's an old friend of mine. <clears throat> I was about 10 years sober when we 12-stepped him. He had a great deal of difficulty. And then Jerome caught it. Caught the spirit. Got with it. Very bright guy. Not only became a good 12-stepper, he got into the treatment business, was doing well there. Was bright enough he was able to talk about our principles and our program so articulately that they had him start giving lectures in the churches and he wrote some books married a very fine cultured lady who did not get involved in any part of what we do and truly didn't understand why Jerome just couldn't have a glass of wine with dinner like other cultured people and for a number of years Jerome said I can't do that 12 years sober Jerome said why not and was struck drunk and some of us found him in a motel out in East Colfax, and the guys that found him loved him enough that they bought him whiskey until he drank himself into a coma so he could finish this one, then rushed him to the hospital. And he stayed sober off and on and off and on and had a difficult time, never ever really got completely sober again. Four weeks ago, he died in the Denver City Jail, drunk. I talk to Jerome, I talk to anybody who comes here and drinks, because I need to tell you something. I've been continuously sober since December 26th of 1967. 
And I tell you that to impress you deeply. Not with me, but I need to impress you with the fact that that's possible. Relapse is not part of recovery, new people. Unfortunately, it will happen, but it doesn't have to. And I talked to Jerome, and he told me all the things. People who drink again tend to stop going to meetings and stop sponsoring people and stop participating in the activities that keep you in touch with God who keeps you sober. But Jerome said the real reason he drank is that he never believed the doctor's opinion. He never truly believed in that allergy of the body that we suffer from. And so 12 years sober, he had an open door he could go through without any defenses, and he took a drink. We lose more than we save, you know. We, uh, <laughs> but those we save, man, ain't we some? <laughs> really? I love alcoholics. So do you, Alanon, so you wouldn't be here. <laughs> My wife reminds me that I have only kept one promise that I made her because I only made her one. I said, if you'll spend the rest of your life with me, I promise you it will never be dull. <laughs> That's true. We're exciting sitting in a chair. Because you've been around us long at all. You know if we're sitting quietly in a chair, we're thinking. <laughs> That's enough to make anybody nervous. <laughs> I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but I have to tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous did not get me sober. God got me sober. And five and a half months later brought me, hand carried me to you. So that, that sobriety could take on some meaning and some dimension and some purpose. Because just sobriety by itself is the most impossible state of being for any alcoholic. That's why we drink. We can't stand being sober. If sobriety by itself was all there was, I just wouldn't want to be here. But that isn't what it's all about. It's so much more than that. That's where it starts. Uh, If I take a drink today, it's all gone. But if there's nothing else going on, why bother? You have made my life so rich. I came to the end of the road because I finally ran out of lies and purpose. The great promise of Alcoholics Anonymous is that you can once again be useful. And the reason I had to die Christmas night in 1967 is because I did the most thorough inventory I've ever done in my life. I looked at my life and could find no reason to be here. I want to just tell you briefly about that week. To clear some things up, I'm also one of the freaks that came out of Berkeley in the 60s. That's a Jerry Garcia tie, you know. I was there when the band was formed. I was on Owsley's Runners, throwing out LSDs, screaming out, where there's dope, there's hope, burn down City Hall. (laughs) But I am not a drug addict. You also need to know that. Just because you use drugs doesn't make you a drug addict any more than just drinking makes you an alcoholic. And if you're new here, please find out what you are. Please, this thing will work for anybody, but it must have a foundation of truth. Find out what you are. You know how you do that? I can't help you find out if you're a drug addict, but I can help you find out if you're an alcoholic. We have a proven method of finding out if you're an alcoholic. In fact, we have two. We have a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, which details all of the symptoms of the disease of alcoholism. And if we can't convince you by a certain point, we will suggest you go drink again. See if you can do some control drinking. Uh, And if you can, good luck. If you can't, we'll be right here. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I was in my first federal penitentiary when I was 19 years old. And uh, I've been in three penitentiaries. I almost hate to talk about it because people think there's a lot of drama in that. There's really not. It's just not a nice place to live. And I didn't go to the penitentiary because I was a big-time gangster. The big-time gangsters don't even go once. (laughs) 
I was in my first federal penitentiary in Japan when I was 19 because of alcoholism, and I didn't know that. See, when I drink alcohol, I get lost, and I can't find my way home. And when you're in the Navy, that's a felony. <laughs> They'd give me a 24-hour liberty and expect me back in 24 hours. Well, I expected to be back in 24 hours, too, until I had a drink. And the last, I'd, I'd be 26 or 28 hours, and the last time I did that, I was 23 days late. And uh, when I got back to the ship, it wasn't there anymore. It was on its way to Korea, which was a war zone, and I was in some deep trouble. And I didn't know why that happened until one of you took me to a part of the book Alcoholics Anonymous called The Doctor's Opinion. And I found me there. He talks about men who had been working on a business deal or it would be settled favorably to them on a certain date and they took a drink a day or two before and they missed their appointment and I got my first duck feather. I took a drink of alcohol in Long Beach, California. And for 22 days I had to drink. And it wasn't because I was insane. I was, but it wasn't because I didn't love my job or my family. I changed. When I take a drink of alcohol, I change. Carl Jung, in our book Alcoholics Anonymous, describes what happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol. Ideas and conceptions that used to rule the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and an entirely new set of conceptions begins to dominate them. He's talking about a spiritual experience. And for my very first drink, that's exactly what happened to me. I went into an evening when I was in high school, we got a guy to buy us a bottle of whiskey and went out east of Denver to drink it and have some fun. The big guy said this would be fun. I'm always up for fun. I had a couple of drinks of bonded bourbon, and up to that point I had been stupid and short and frightened and a coward. And I couldn't talk to you because you'd say something intelligent and I'd belch. <laughs> And if a girl lecked at me, I just fell apart entirely. And I had a couple drinks and everything in me changed. I got taller, smarter, all the things that happened. But what I remember most out of the evening is that for the first time that I could ever recall, I had some plans. Up to that moment, I was a reactor. Life happened and I reacted to it. And I began to build all the scripts so that I would have the right reaction at the right time. And my timing was usually bad. I tend to uh, laugh at funerals and cry at hockey games. A <laughs> couple drinks of bonded bourbon and the plans cleared. It was okay for me to be me and it was okay for you to be you. And there was a guy in my class in high school that hadn't been treating me very well and I was going to meet him at the drive-in and whip him. And I could have done it. And there was a little girl who hadn't been treating me at all and uh, we were going to have a visit. We hear a lot of the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I must tell you, one of the most precious to me is I have learned to visit. Not to talk at you or talk to you, but to visit with you. It's an art. It requires you be at least as interested in the other person as you are yourself. So it's very hard for us to do, to just visit. <laughs> It is in my nature that if one works, you take ten. It's, it's not a thought process. That's just the way it is. So by the time I got back to the drive-in with my plans, instead of being able to whip the bully and visit with a the girl, they were hauling me around by the elbows while I puked in the driveway. And that's how I drank. When you talked about the symptom of alcoholism being loss of control, I could get that. I've never had any control. In fact, my whole life was lived to deliberately get out of control. I tried to get control for a while, but it was far more fun to get out of control. <clears throat> Christmas week in 1967, my two little boys and I were at the end of the road. Their mother had left several years before. Sean was a year and a half old and a year old and Terry was two and a half when she left and I became a single parent long before it was even fashionable. 
my alcoholism was catching up with me. We spent four and a half years on the road, those kids and I, because I was restless, irritable, and discontent. There was always something chasing me. Couldn't sit still. Had to keep moving. Tried very, very hard to be super straight. I must tell you, the, the dream of my heart was to be a decent father. To raise those kids correctly. And I couldn't do it. I tried. I tried until it just broke my heart and then I decided to hell with it. I'll become super freak. And I almost made it. I studied under some real masters. <laughs> okay. So this week, to set the stage for you, I weighed 133 pounds. I was on federal parole for a little indiscretion I'd committed in 1966. We were on aid to dependent children because I couldn't work. I couldn't get out of bed till I had a little amphetamine to get me up. And then the only reason I got up was to get out and steal enough to get some booze to go back to sleep. And that was our life, and it was just eating me alive. What bothered me most is that I come from a functional home. I apologize to you for that, but I do. <laughs> I'm the only alcoholic in it. My Uncle Walt tried, but he didn't have the heart. About 25 years ago, Walt was a good drinker. About 25 years ago, his doctor said, Walter, if you don't quit drinking, you're going to die. And Walter quit. <laughs> No stamina. <laughs> oh, you, people think we're weak. you got to be tough to be an alcoholic. <laughs> I grew up in a home that functioned. My parents were married for as long as they lived. We lived in the same house from the time I was in sixth grade on. My younger brother is a professor of music at the University of Colorado. He was writing music with Stan Kenton when he was 19 years old. He was a booker for the Army Band when he was 21, and to this day, he writes a symphony every year. He just came back from Russia and from Sweden. They took him over this summer to have him teach in Moscow for a month so they could figure out what it is he does. He grew up right down the hall from me, next room over. <laughs> My little sister, bless her heart, she retired from IBM eight, ten years ago. She was a top executive with IBM. Made good money, great babies. Her babies have been busy making babies. I was at a family function the other day, and there's kids that look an awful lot like me, and I have no idea who they belong to. <laughs> because you young guys are about half nuts, we can't seem to find good husbands to go with these new babies. But in my family, the whole attitude when a baby shows up is, isn't that nice? There's another Prince baby. Let's raise it. And then there was me. If I'd have been able to make a list of the qualities that existed in the home I wish I'd have been raised in, that's the home I was raised in, and I didn't fit. I can remember laying in bed 13 years old, wondering when my people were going to come back from outer space and pick me up because I certainly didn't feel or think like you guys said you felt or thought. I must be an alien of some kind. I brought all that to alcohol. Christmas week in 1967 is wonderful because I hit absolute rock bottom. Now, for me, I would define bottom as simply being any morning that I wake up and realize that whatever I had in mind for my life isn't going to happen. And when I'm young, I can bounce. Get a whole new set of dreams, a whole new set of plans. In fact, that's the greatest harm I did to the people that loved me the most is that I was really good off the line. I was a sprinter in the game of life, not a long-distance runner. People are very kind. They keep giving us chances. And I really, with all my heart, wanted to do the right thing. So I'd learn, and I'd get going, and everybody would get a new job and a new place, and we'd get going, and everybody would say, look, he's going to make it this time. And then they'd get distracted, and I'd be gone. Because somewhere along the line, I'd get restless and irritable and discontent. 
And I get a feeling in me that only a drink of alcohol would settle. And it made me crazy. I didn't want it that way, but it, that's the way it was, and I didn't understand it. So we're in this basement apartment. I know what Christmas is supposed to look like because I come from a home where Christmas looked like that. A real tree from the outside, decorated with tinsel. and You know, we used to sew popcorn together on strings. And, and the house would smell good. There'd be a big pot of cider with cinnamon in it and hot chocolate with marshmallows. And I'm not talking about them sissy things. These were marshmallows. <laughs> the kind you had to go and get it off there for you. Oh. And my memories of Christmas were of people. I was, I guess I was amazed. I was always interested because people would come by over the Christmas holiday and visit with my folks. <clears throat> All kinds of people. Well, in my life, in 1967, nobody visited us. Even my parole officer wouldn't come by. He made me go see him. <laughs> it's a lonely existence at the end of the alcoholic road. We talk about it being lonely while you're doing it. At the end of the road, it's just god-awful lonely. On the 24th, we took a walk because that's what we did in my house in those days. And we found a dollar in the snow. Went to the Christmas tree lot just to see what had happened, and they sold us the biggest tree on the lot for a dollar. And uh, I still remember that. Don't ever wipe it out. We had a seven-foot ceiling and a nine-foot tree. And it <laughs> decorated it with garbage. And there was a place called the Public Merchandise Mart in Denver that <clears throat> gave me a pair of cowboy boots and a little cowboy shirt on credit because the welfare check hadn't gotten there yet. And this kind man gave me that so each of my boys would have one present. My little boys had taken blue paper towel and wrapped up everything in the house that had fit in blue paper towel. For me. And my heart broke. I didn't get sober because of the truth. I simply ran out of lies. And when it broke, I began to realize, see, the lie was I'd have told you all, we're doing fine. The kids and I are doing fine. We have a place to live and the family's intact. We're all right. And that was a lie. We lived in a dump. And it was not an intact family. It was two little boys and a screaming madman. And we were not okay. And it was beginning to get clearer. <clears throat> On Christmas Day, we went down to my folks' place because it would never occur to me not to go home for Christmas. <clears throat> My dad met us at the door, and he said, Don, I'm sorry, but your mother said I can't let you in here anymore. She can't stand watching you die. And I'd have said on that day, just leave me the hell alone. I'm not hurting anybody but me. And that was a lie that day, and I could see it. I saw what I'd done to her and to the kids and everybody I ever touched. It just got clear that that was a lie. And then my dad destroyed my last lie because he snuck us into the basement. I'd have sworn to you that day nobody loved us and nobody cared whether we lived or died. And he made a lie out of that. And I didn't have any lies left. Well, you can imagine how I felt. I went home with a heart full of self-pity. Oh, my God. And then I got to walk past the self-pity into the truth. And the truth was there was no reason for me to be here. Everybody I could think of would be better off if I weren't here. And that was the truth. I had become useless. That's the bottom of all human pain, is when you are useless. You cannot live with that. I couldn't. <clears throat> There's nowhere else to bounce. I tried everything. My God. When I was 19, I got into Dianetics. I knew something was wrong with me. And uh, i got to tell you, if I ever question my sound decision-making ability, I've just been in a penitentiary. I've been kicked out of the Navy. I'm desperately sick. I need help. So I turned my will and my life over to the care of a science fiction writer. <laughs> well, that's what he is. Had a great time for two years. Had a great time. I've been a fundamentalist Mormon. 
did that sober. I was looking for my third wife when I got sane. I can tell you about that one in private. Babs, it was a honey. Six years sober, and I, someone had convinced me that AA was spiritual high school and it was time I got into college. And based on spiritual greed and spiritual fear, I went. You gotta be careful of those. Just because you become a spiritual being doesn't mean you're not in danger. Spiritual greed is that thing that says, if I do this, I get a little better pace in the kingdom than you do. And spiritual fear is that thing that says, if I don't do this, I don't get in at all. And I was inconsistent with everything I knew, but I followed it for from what actually I was following a blonde. <laughs> Well, I was married to her, and she wanted to go, and I wanted to be with her. What the hell? It's too complex to talk about here tonight. (laughs) But because of the experience I'd had of the presence of God for six years, within four months it became clear to me there's something really wrong here. What I was being taught about God was inconsistent with what I knew of God. And so I, went, I did some praying, and I went out on the desert outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and said to this other God, if you're the God of the universe, I am in the wrong universe, and I quit. And if you don't like it, hit me with that bolt right now, or I'm going to talk ugly about you for the rest of my life. And of course, nothing happened. I had created God in my own image one more time. So nothing happened. And I came back to my sponsor and told him what was going on. Very wise. He said, that's insane. <laughs> I was so glad to hear that. I had a suspicion that that might be the case. <laughs> so, so I returned to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been, I never gave up on you. I just tried to get a doctoral degree in something. Everything I need is here. Everything I've needed for 30 years is here. Because God is here. Anyway, when this whole deal was over, in order for me to get out of that sense of absolute pain of being useless, you have to either surrender or die. And there was nothing to surrender to anymore. So I took a two-month supply of the garbage I was using at the time and shot it up my arm and drank everything in the house and laid down and I died. And I truly believe I died. I've not had a drink or a pill or a fix or a thought of one since that time. I can tell you, you new people particularly, we talk a lot about spiritual awakenings and they sound like fun. They ain't. They hurt like the dickens at the beginning. I woke up the next morning, and I wasn't supposed to. And the police were at the door, and that is not what I had in mind. My, My son let them in, and they took us away. And they had nine charges, and the first one called for three years to life in the penitentiary for me. And the district attorney told me if I beat that one, he'd bring the other eight one at a time, but I was through. And I was in a blessed state because I didn't care. See, I was now a complete failure at living and a complete failure at dying. It leaves you in a state of reasonableness. I was willing to go anywhere anybody said and do anything anybody said if it meant I didn't have to be me anymore. And it's in that state that you found me. I, I detoxed in the Denver County Jail for six weeks. Don't ever forget that. I don't believe for a second that remembering that six weeks of pain will keep me sober, but it has made me a very good sponsor. You can come to me at five weeks pounding on your head and your legs and saying, I'm dying, and I can look you right in the eye and say, not yet. you got a week to go. (laughs) The power of God entered into my life before I ever heard the name. Belief in the power of God is what brought me here. And I didn't even know the name. When I came to trial five and a half months later, they took me in a room with the district attorney and my lawyer and said, we've been talking to the federal people, and we all think you're really sick. I agreed. I've known that for years. They said, the the federal people have agreed that if you plead guilty to a reduced charge so we don't have to have a messy trial... We'll give you a suspended sentence, and they'll take you back and take you to Fort Worth, Texas, to that hospital and fix you. And I signed right there. I'm not an idiot. I'm a drunk. Okay. 
Now, if you know about power, you know that the power of the state of Colorado combined with the power of the government of the United States, when they say Don goes from Denver to Fort Worth, Don goes from Denver to Fort Worth. 1966, they did that same thing to me. And five days later, I was in the Colorado State Penitentiary fish tank. I actually heard myself say, you can't do this to me from the place they were doing it to me from. <laughs> and I believe that's by the grace and the love of, a, of God. I had truly surrendered and didn't even know what it was. Had I gone to that hospital, I would not be here tonight. I'd have been out of there in six months. If you give me doctors and books, I'm in charge. They'll tell me how long it takes to fix me. They'll tell me what's wrong with me. They'll give me the set of symptoms I have to provide to show I'm getting better. That's my very best game. God knew I needed you, not them. I didn't know I was alcoholic. Nobody knew I was alcoholic. My, my alcoholism was such that nobody could see it. My drinking was such a part of my life that nobody saw it. Not even me. Whatever I was doing, straight or crazy, I was drinking. Using drugs or not using drugs, I drank. If I was an insurance salesman, I drank. If I was a drug smuggler, I drank. Everything I did, I drank, so nobody saw it. <coughs> well, you guys sent some angels over to me, and they didn't look that cool, let me tell you. They all had numbers on their chest, and a couple of them were really ugly. And I'll never forget my first words. The guard hollered at us, you people will come down and you will listen. And I participated for the first time in my life because I sat down and I listened. And a guy got up and he said, my name is Doc and I'm an alcoholic. And that means that I'm powerless over alcohol and drugs and guards and all of the other circumstances in my life. And my life has become unmanageable. And if any of you smart bastards think you can still manage your lives, look at the reward the state just gave you for the nifty job you've been doing. <laughs> That's the kind of sponsorship I had. They told me the straight-out, unvarnished truth. Your very best thinking got you the penitentiary. You're not doing too good, are you? But because we love each other, it's always been followed by, but we can show you a new way of thinking. Do you know what they promised me? That they could show me how to learn to live a way of life that made sense to me. Man, there was an idea that I caught on to. I've been trying to live my life to make sense to you. My life never made sense to anybody. And I'm pleased to tell you today that my life doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But until you put bread on my table, I don't much care. Okay? My life makes sense to me and to my wife and my children. And... Uh, that's good enough for me. I was hand-carried through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in five weeks. Before we were allowed to go to the regular AA meeting, which was held on, on Friday night, where they let real people in from the outside, you had to qualify that. You weren't good enough to go to that meeting yet. So every Saturday and every Sunday afternoon, we went to school. All afternoon... And when the first time we got there, the first thing they said was, you new guys for the next five weeks have nothing to say. If you knew anything at all, you wouldn't be here. And they read to us aloud from the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and shared their own personal experiences of that process with us, and then had us do that. <clears throat> had some wonderful experiences with that. Found out I was alcoholic, first of all. Didn't know that's what the problem was, but I found out came to believe that there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. And I'm an old word mechanic, and I, I had a sponsor who encouraged me to challenge him. He said, don't get tripped up over the word restore. We will admit that there was some time in your life when you were sane. We will assume you went insane about two seconds after birth. <laughs> so we don't have to track anything down. <laughs> okay. He said, we don't even think the truth's going to work for you. And he told me why. He said, you take the truth in your head and your ego catches it and says something like, Aha, I can use that later. I can catch an edge with that somewhere down the way, so it's not the truth by the time I get to it. He said, we suggest you forget everything you think you know about anything, particularly about spiritual matters. And I balked. I said, come on, I, 
I'm 34 years old. I must have learned something of the truth. And he said, it's doubtful, but it is possible. <laughs> it, it's barely possible. But let me tell you something. If it's truth, it'll still be truth when we're all through. And all the rest of us garbage, so just set the whole package down. And to this day, that stands me in good stead. If I'm willing to fight you over an opinion, it's my opinion. It's not the truth. The truth never needs defended. It just stands there and it's the truth. And I don't have to fight for it. Makes, makes it a little easier to get along with. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love a good hassle. <laughs> but I play most of my mind games now with my children. Uh, one of the reasons my daughter and I love each other my stepdaughter, she's my daughter, but she was three when I came into her house. <clears throat> she wasn't all too sure of me. And there were some things going on. One day she called home from school, which she was running, by the way. She was in training to be Empress of the Universe when I got there. <laughs> she called and said, uh, is mom there? And I said, who's mom? She says, my mom. I said, well, who's this? She said, this is Kelly. I said, I'm sorry, Kelly's not here and hung up. <laughs> and she fell in love with me. I know how to play. Okay. My six-year-old grandson just spent a year with us. We get along fine. His name's Nicholas, and he thinks that's too pretentious, so I call him Tricky Nick. <laughs> and if you ask him what his name is, he'll tell you, I'm Tricky Nick. <laughs> my eight-month-old granddaughter's in the house. We play and talk to each other. You know how to talk to a baby? <laughs> she's talking back now. It's making her mother nervous because she's got that down pretty good. <laughs> I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself because I saw it walking around in the form of Bruce and Roy and Phil. I didn't know I needed sobriety. I knew I needed to be changed entirely. <coughs> Bruce was doing a natural life sentence in that penitentiary for a double murder he'd committed one morning when he was 17 years old and drunk. And I'd never done that. If I'd had to listen to the identify with the drama, I was a coward. I didn't go sh shootouts on the street. <coughs> but the man telling me the story was incapable of committing the act. And I could see that. And I asked him about it, and he said, that's right. I have been changed, and God changed me. Phil had been there for seven years. Phil came from Guam because they couldn't handle him in Guam and eventually ended up in our penitentiary because on his last drunk, he threw some people out of a three-story window. Terribly violent man when he drank. Phil was the most loving, kind human being I have ever met. He's the one who taught me how to physically touch in a penitentiary, where it's a little risky. <laughs> But there was a quality in Phil's touching. He knew something about us. We're all puppies, you know. I've never outgrown my need to be petted and petted and scratched behind the ears. We're not smart here. We're healers. And when I discovered that, I started checking on what is it that healers do, because I want to be a good one. <clears throat> my wife is a healer. She's a nurse in an infant research unit, Children's Hospital. Now, her babies are very much like the babies I get. They don't understand English. Okay. So you can't tell them what's wrong with them. And I watch her operate. And she'll pick these tiny babies up, and she'll start patting them. And she says things like, you're in the right place, honey. You're going to be all right. We care about you. You'll be fine. You just stay here with us. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay. She engages them and she touches them. I get thinking about the great healer and what he did. He'd be walking down a road and see some poor guy sitting there all covered with sores and blind and crippled. And the guy sitting there in the dirt, blind and crippled and sores, was completely alone. And he thought he was alone because he was blind and crippled and had sores on him. The great master knew he had the, the sores and was crippled and was blind because he thought he was alone. So the first thing he did, if you read it, is reach out and touch him and said something like, Anybody home? 
the very instant you touch a human being, whether they like it or not, they cannot be alone. The fact is, there is something else there. It breaks that deal. So what do we do? Some poor damn lonely fool wanders in here, and the first thing we do is grab him by the hand and the elbow and wrap him around him and sit him down and give him some coffee and pat him and tell him, you're, you're in the right place. We really need you. You're important to us. And then he did something that we tend to have forgotten to do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because God is never rude. It comes by imitation only. And after he said, is there anybody home? And they said, huh? He would say, do you want to get up? Do you want to do something about this? And if they said yes, he gave them the magic answer. He'd say, get up. We got all this stuff we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know where it starts? Some drunk comes in here, and we ask him, do you want to stop drinking? And he says, yeah. How do I do that? Don't drink. (laughs) Don't drink and you can't get drunk. Starts the magic. If we say it with complete conviction, they can believe us. I have been continuously sober without a thought of a drink for 30 straight years. I can look you in the eye and say that with such conviction that you know it's possible. Then we can start doing the things we have to do to make it possible for you, too. Okay? And that's what they did for me. I wanted really badly to believe in God. My attitude at the time was that God had created the heaven and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, and for me, he was still resting. For them, he was alive. And I went back to my cell one day, really wanting to do it, and with everything in me, I said that third-step prayer and had the worst experience of my life. I fully expected it to go boom. And I think I probably at some level expected my clothes to turn white instead of green, the cell door to spring open, and some guard to say, oh, you can go home now, Fritz. We don't need you anymore. And nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. I can handle earthquakes and tornadoes and car crashes and narcotics raids. I can't handle nothing. In the big book, one of the promises is that we will enjoy peace, learn to enjoy peace of mind. I don't think that means I'll get peace of mind. I've got to somehow learn to enjoy it. I've never enjoyed it when it gets quiet in my head. Immediately I think, oh, something's wrong here. (laughs) I went back to my sponsor and complained. I suggest you do that. If you do what your sponsor says and you don't get the exact results you think you (laughs) I did. I went back to him with the alcoholic war cry ringing from my lips. Where's mine? That can't be mine. It's not big enough. It's the wrong color. Where's mine? There's not enough of it. He said, you dummy, you ought to be grateful you didn't have a flash of light. They nearly killed you all your life. And we talked about them. He, he described to me, he said, God knows, Don, that you probably can't stand one more big shock in the shape you're in anyway. And he will probably come to you as he came to me, gently and over a period of time. He will never give you more than you can handle. And he said he never gives anything negative. You can't stand the good. It's going to come slowly until you can learn how to live with it. And that's how it's been for me. We went through the inventory process. My first one was a lie. I uh, spent. I wanted so bad to have this thing, I spent two hours writing down all the worst things I'd ever done. I went back to him with it, and he looked at it. He said, that's garbage. You wrote that to impress me. Get away from me. And uh, by God, I spent two hours trying to be honest. And I found somebody who would listen to it. And I had a spiritual awakening. Now, please understand, when I talk about a spiritual awakening, that's any time that any alcoholic understands any part of the truth, that's a spiritual awakening. (laughs) I would tell this guy one of the worst things I'd done, and he'd say, well, that wasn't that bad. I'm talking to a big-time gangster. Of course it wasn't that bad. I'd tell him something else, and he'd say, well, that wasn't that bad. And I began to wake up to the fact that once again I had picked somebody who would tell me what I wanted to hear so I didn't have to do anything about it. And I know if I didn't stop that immediately, I was going to die a very ugly death. And I'm not afraid of death. I've died three times that I can remember. 
But to die an ugly death means that for some period of time just before that, I'm going to have to live an ugly life. And that's beyond, I can't do that. Can't do it. So I went back and did the best I could. Learned some things about resentment. It's a spiritual disease, you know. It's not a mental condition or emotional condition. It's a spiritual disease. Because it separates me from you. And anything that separates me from the children of God separates me from God. So I've got to get square with that. There's a promise at the inventory that without I would never have made it. <clears throat> I've got to face every cruddy thing I ever did in my life. I've really got to take a look at that. And the promise is that if you'll face and be rid of the things, and it's that to be rid of that saved my life. I get to live with the fact one of the jobs I had, I was a drug smuggler. That's a job. Uh, the boys had gotten some stuff to Juarez one time, and uh, their driver got busted, and they said, well, call Prince. He's crazy. He'll get it. And, and they did, and I said, sure. Because I didn't have a conscience in those days. I went in and got it, and the way I brought it out of the country, and I get to live with this, is that I put it in an air mattress in a Volkswagen bus, and put dirty diapers on top of the air mattress, and then put my two children on top of that, and when we hit the border station, I yelled at them so they'd be crying. That's really a shitty thing to do, but they won't mess with you that way. Had I not been able to understand what you told me, that I could get rid of the kind of thinking that would allow that to happen, I couldn't have faced it. I can tell you clearly, it's impossible for me to even conceive of doing anything like that ever again. And how do you clean something like that up? Well, Chuck Chamberlain helped me with that. He told me there is absolutely nothing we can do about what we've done to our children. It's done. What we can do, though, is create an arena where they, too, have the opportunity to heal. And we call that home. And I've been living in the same home, married to the same woman, for 22 years. And my children have had the opportunity to heal. And they're not fully healed. They will be forever damaged. But we've cleaned it all up. <clears throat> I get very frustrated with these talks. You've got to understand, I've been living with a sense of the presence of God every day for 30 years. There's an eight-hour talk in me. And I've about run out of time, and I'm getting to the place where I've got some important things to say to you. <laughs> I've got about ten minutes left, and I'm going to try to squeeze some of them in, because the essence of this thing is not just not drinking. <clears throat> I promised Kelly I'd tell you about the doors. <laughs> My two teenage sons and I had been living at the base of Mount Princeton, and I was working in the penitentiary up there. Life was good. It was just us, and I reached a place where I didn't care if I ever saw another woman, really, truly. I got to fish when I wanted to and not fish when I didn't want to. And I had a black dog and a white cat and two teenage kids and work I loved. And through a series of circumstances that I would have avoided if I could have, I met this sane lady. Nothing happened, except it was a pleasant evening, so I went back and fell completely, absolutely, knee-walking, crazy in love with this woman. And three months later, we both realized we either make a lifetime commitment of this or we stop seeing each other, and being in love with her was not enough. I had to go back to the mountain and seriously pray and think about what this meant. It would mean, because she's far more important in what she does than I am. She's a head nurse on an infant research unit. I can sell sighting if I need to. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Okay. I, I'm in corrections, and what I do in corrections is sell sighting to people who don't have houses. <laughs> And I'll tell you why I married this lady. After looking over all the aspects of it, my life with her is based on my relationship with God. And that's one commitment and one commitment only. I am willing to grow old 
with God running my life, and I'm willing to grow old with this lady. And that's why I married her. And you know what? I'm doing it. I'm growing old with this lady. I will be there. She asked me what I meant by commitment. I said, it's simple, honey. Once this is done, if you want me out of here, you're going to have to put my stuff on the porch and call the sheriff because I'm not leaving. I'm there, good or bad, I'm there. And that makes it real easy. Real easy. But she had these two little girls, and I had just finished raising seven children. Two of my own, and a marriage that didn't work, there were five more. I think I'd done my fair share. I got a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and raising girls is different than anything on the planet. I've raised boys, and I've raised twins, and I've raised dogs. But raising a five-year-old and a three-year-old girl who haven't had a daddy around is something else. They made me nervous. I don't know what it is about you girls, but at a certain age, you're mean. These girls have mouths on them. I've been in the Navy and hadn't heard some of this stuff. And they'd get to picking at each other, and then they'd get to saying things about the neighbors and about their mother, and I'm thinking, my God, what's going on here? So one morning, I had finished my morning meditations, and I was pure and clean. I wasn't walking. I was just kind of floating around the house getting ready to go to work. And they were in the kitchen. They were, I suppose, 11 and 12 by now. And Lisa said to Kelly, bitch. And Kelly said back, bitch. I did a really stupid thing. I said, don't do that. Now, I didn't know at that time that in little girl language that means, oh, daddy wants to play too. And I was no longer floating. I was solidly on the floor. And Lisa looked at me and then looked back at Kelly and went, big bitch. And it escalated. And I did another stupid thing. I said, knock it off. Which in little girl talk means, we got him now. They went berserk. I went berserk. I said, get up the stairs and get in your room. And they, they're tittering and laughing and running up to their room. As they went in, they slammed the doors. Now, in my house, a closed door is very important. The spiritual life and just the human life requires solitude and privacy. But by God, if we're going to slam them, we're not going to have them. I bounded up those stairs and started taking doors off the hinges. And they're laughing at me. <laughs> Carried those doors down in the basement and they headed off for school. And I got to the basement with the doors, which by now had become heavy. <laughs> and, and there's a voice in my head that talks to me in critical times and it says, Well, dummy, you know what you have to do. You gotta carry them all the way back up. Rehang them, and then when those little girls get home from school, you got to apologize for being such a jerk. And I hadn't even done anything. <laughs> you taught me how to deal with those situations, and I got my pen and pencil out, and my pa- pencil and paper, and did some praying, and I discovered why their behavior affected me. Why would that threaten me? And I found it, and I took care of it. And what came out of it is now when they misbehave, I send myself to my room. It's just a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> but I found out what it was. You see, I loved them so much. And I was able to talk to them about it. I said to Lisa, let me tell you what happened here. If anyone on earth had treated you the way she just treated you, I'd break their arm to protect you from that. And the same goes for you. But I love you both so much I can't do anything. You got me in a bind. And I can't do a thing. Now, they didn't change much. But they stopped doing it around me. Okay? And I began to realize, because they talked back to me and said, we were just playing. 
Now, I think it's a weird game, but okay. <laughs> if that's how they want to play, I no longer want in the game. Okay. As a result of simply understanding that my life is no longer my business, it's God's, and that my life is not for me, it's for you, and I go where I'm asked and do what I'm asked, and I really do live that way, Whatever God has in mind for me is better than anything I will ever have in mind for me. And I'm imperfect, but I do live that way. And as a result of that, I ended up down in North Carolina about five years ago in the middle of hepatitis and interferon treatments. I had to leave my home and my group and everything I knew and go to North Carolina because one of my messengers came by and said, Will you come and help me, Tom Ivester? It saved my life. I had once again become useless because of my physical condition, and I was dying. And he put me to work. Now, I've lived with a sense of the presence of God from the first time I met you, and that has sustained me through everything that you can imagine, good and bad. I just know that where I am, God is. And I was down there in North Carolina one morning, and I woke up, and my sense of God's presence was not there. And it didn't frighten me, and I don't know why. It just wasn't there, and I immediately began to pray. I look back on it, it's kind of funny. If there's no God, what am I praying to? <laughs> but prayer is a habit for me. It's a good habit. And my prayer was simple. I need to know you. I need to know you're here. I need to feel your presence. I need to know you better. And my phone rang, and it was Billy, 6 o'clock in the morning. He said, look, I was just seven weeks sober last week, and I drank. And Alan was 12 years sober, and he drank. And we got another member of our group getting ready to drink. And the guys tell me that every now and then, if we ask you to, you'll sit down and just read the big book out loud over a weekend, and somehow people don't drink after that anymore. Would you do that for us? And I got another habit. I said, sure, Billy. And then I tried to get ready for work, and the damn phone kept ringing. And I couldn't even get dressed for work. And it hit me. He talked to me again. He was talking directly to me. God says to me, if you want to know my presence, get among my people. If you want to know me better, get among my people. So you are a blessing to me. There's no sacrifice for me to have to come out here. You're my blessing. I've lived with a sense of the presence of God all this time, and every day the miraculous is happening. And if I don't get to tell somebody about it, I'm going to wither up and become an ugly old man. I just don't want to do that. <clears throat> I've made peace with everybody, to the best of my knowledge. A year ago, March, my beloved dad died. And it was a good death. He came to the end of the road. He was 85, had gangrene. He just, he'd had enough. He was just finished with it. And we all, the whole family gathered for two, two days in the room and helped him die. And because of our attitude, our, our, the young kids didn't understand what was going on. We were able to be there for them and explain to them what's going on here. Talk to Grandpa. He can't respond to you, but he can hear you. Tell him goodbye. But the blessing for me is that over the years, he and I made peace and got square with each other all the way across the board. So when he left, there was no, I'll never have to worry about going to his grave and saying, Papa, we should have said this to you or that to you. It all got said. If there's any blessing I can offer you is get square with the world. I don't want to ever have to stand at anybody's grave, and I don't want you ever standing at mine wishing you'd have said something to me. I love you. I belong to you. I think you're weird. But I love you. Okay. My brother and I made peace and it took 22 years. One last quick little story because it's cute and I'll wrap this up. I now work in corrections. They gave me the keys to the place. <laughs> Part of my job, uh, I'm, I'm coordinator for drug alcohol program in a correctional facility, and part of my job is to see to it the district attorney and the judges do their job right to get the people to us. And every now and then I have to go talk to them, straighten them out on some things. It's just my job. And this particular morning it was my turn to go see the district attorney, and I had on my second best coat. This is my best coat. 
And a fine tie that I picked out myself. I mean, I looked good. And on, on the way out the door, my daughter handed me the new baby. She was six months old at that time. So I could say goodbye. And she upshucked all over my <laughs> Now I can remember what I used to, my response to that at one time. You got poked right in the nose. But it ran through my head, isn't this wonderful? They trust me with their babies. I can change the tie. They trust me with their babies. Well, my brother and I made peace. 22 years, he finally invited my wife over, my wife and I over for dinner. And after dinner, he said, look, I don't know if you and I can ever be friends. But this was pleasant. We can do this again. See, I betrayed everything he believed in. I was his hero. I was his big brother. I was everything he believed in. And he went writing music for Stan Kenton, and I went to the penitentiary. He watched what I did to the family. I have no reason to ever expect him to ever even talk to me again. I visit the folks regularly, and when I was in North Carolina, I just stopped by to visit, and he came in and sat down, and it was kind of cute. I had my legs crossed, and he reached across and kicked me on the bottom of the foot and said, you know, I'm really glad to see you. And he was surprised, because he really was. <laughs> he couldn't figure that one out. He said, look, next time you're in town, why don't you and I just go up to the cabin and do some fishing? So I made a trip back. And he and I went up to the cabin, did very little fishing. We spent the day playing cribbage and talking to each other. And he gave me the most precious gift that's ever been given me from another human being. He gave me what he thought was his essence, who he really was. You don't give that to just anybody. You've got to really love somebody to give them who you really are. He said, Don, I want you to know something. I'm 58 years old now, and I believe I've made a decent contribution to life. What a gift. He solved another problem for me. I've been trying for a long time to tell you how I feel about you. I've told you about the statue of David and Michelangelo and all that. Well, from my beloved brother to you, I'm 64 now. And because of you, I believe I've been able to make a decent contribution.